If you have a Bible, please open it up to Luke chapter 8. We uh, were doing a series thinking about the fruit of the Spirit this summer, and uh, we're done with that series, and we're back into the Gospel of Luke this fall. So if you have a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 8, verses 19 to 21. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs, that should be on page 732. Luke chapter 8, 19 to 21. When our kids were little, like maybe old enough to crawl, but not old enough to really talk clearly, they liked to jabber on cell phones. Um because that's what they saw the big people doing, right? Uh, only they weren't picky. They didn't need an iPhone or a Galaxy S5. Uh, for them, any old phone would do. A uh, toy phone or even a TV remote would work. Um, it didn't matter because no one was talking back to them, and uh, their imagination made up for whatever the technology lacked. Um, and so they would pick up the TV remote, and they would call it a phone, and that was really cute. But when you grow up, Calling something the real thing when it is not the real thing isn't nearly as cute. Can you imagine an adult taking a toy cell phone and telling you it was their cell phone? <laughs> or can you imagine you go to a tag sale and, and someone there is trying to sell you their circa 1990s flip phone and they're telling you it's an iPhone 5? You might laugh. You might say, no, it's not. And you calling it the real thing doesn't make it the real thing. Well, that's what today's text addresses. Today's text is about church and what we call church and the fact that just calling something church doesn't necessarily make it the real thing. And what I'd like for us to think about this morning as we look at today's passage is whether much of what we've been calling church in North America these days is actually the real thing. Before we get into today's text, let's go back and remember how we got to this thing that we call church today. In New Testament times, to go all the way back to the beginning, churches were started when the first followers of Jesus uh, went out announcing throughout the Roman Empire, where Caesar was Lord, that God had appointed a new Lord to rule over all, Jesus the Christ. And, and these earlier believers were announcing this. They were also witnessing to the difference that this Jesus made in their lives. These early Christians explained that, that the God of the Jews, the one true God, had finally moved decisively in world history, sending his own son to fulfill the Jewish religion, to send his... Uh, well, uh, to, to, um, sorry, uh, to forgive people's sins and to send his Holy Spirit and to begin the renewal of all creation, beginning with his own people. And how did Jesus accomplish this? Well, he had proclaimed that, um, that God's new renewed kingdom was arriving. He'd taught people how to live in this kingdom. He'd demonstrated the, the power and the goodness of this kingdom by setting people free from evil spirits and diseases and infirmities. He'd extended God's love by welcoming and accepting unlovely and, and sinful people and then by dying on the cross for the sins of all people. 
Best of all, on the third day, Jesus had risen again from the grave to prove that his claims were all true and to be the first to enter into this new eternal kingdom life that he's now leading all of his followers into. Because of Jesus' faithfulness in in fulfilling his his mission and loving obedience to his Father, God, God then exalted Jesus to be Lord of all, to rule over this new kingdom, and to extend it to the whole world. This is the message that these early followers of Jesus were announcing. And as people heard this message and they tasted its reality in the lives of Jesus' followers, many individuals and many whole households chose to embrace Jesus as their Lord and they were baptized into the new life of Jesus' kingdom. They then began to to gather together in homes regularly to to learn to follow Jesus as Lord, to to pray and to praise him, to eat together and to celebrate Jesus' death through a communion meal like we'll be doing later this morning, and and to build one another up spiritually as um, uh, as they joined in God's mission to extend God's kingdom throughout the earth. To join these churches was costly. Many new believers were rejected by their families, by their communities, uh, by their synagogues or their pagan contemporaries. Many lost jobs. They lost friends. They were mocked and despised by society. A number were actually tortured and killed. And yet this Jesus movement kept growing. There was something unmistakable about the love that these people shared and the power of God among them to renew and restore and heal and liberate and the way that they loved and they served others besides themselves. And so as time went on, eventually by around 300 AD, Emperor Constantine made Christianity the favored religion of the Roman Empire. Before long, things began to change for the church. Christian leaders were now receiving salaries and and benefits. Uh, Church buildings were being built. Churches were given land and property. Christians were being preferred for important government positions. And so Christians went from being a despised, persecuted, in some cases hunted down and killed minority, to being mainstream and even privileged. And so not surprisingly, people started lining up in even bigger numbers to become Christians. Not always because they wanted to follow Jesus and to seek his new kingdom, but also because now being a Christian could get you ahead in the old kingdom, the Roman Empire. And so instead of church gatherings being small meetings, sometimes secret, uh, where the faithful shared their spiritual gifts with one another and they encouraged one another to live counterculturally in a hostile empire, now church gatherings were increasingly becoming large, elaborate public services. And as new converts quickly uh, swelled these new buildings and outpaced the, the, the trained leaders, services were becoming uh, passive affairs where hundreds came in and sat quietly while the clergy did the God stuff up in the front. And since more and more of the attenders hadn't signed up really to be followers of Jesus, the, the teaching of scripture in some cases became less about equipping disciples of Jesus and more about encouraging the masses to be good citizens of Christendom to uh, be honest and upright and kind and obedient to their rulers. And so fast forward into the modern era, by the time that Christendom had, uh, had spread across Europe, to be a good Englishman came to mean to be baptized as an Anglican from infancy. 
And to be a good Italian meant to be baptized a Catholic. Now, of course, when the church hit American soil, we put our own unique spin on it like we do everything else. Because in America, there was no king to tell everyone that they should be an Anglican or a Catholic. No, in America, you could be anything you wanted, as long as it was Christian and preferably Protestant. And so church became a voluntary society. A voluntary society is basically an organization in which you choose to participate. And you're free to choose whichever organizations best meet your needs or your interests. Now, for a good while, the understanding was you could go to almost any church you want as long as you go to one. Church was still at the center of of society. It was America's official religion, and good Americans were good Christians who went to church. After all, the church was also where you caught up on the news, where social life happened, where business deals were made, and contacts were established. But over time, even attending church has become optional as Christianity has faded out of fashion and is no longer enjoys its central place in society. Now religion is more of a private choice that individuals make. And so for most Christians today, church is truly a voluntary organization where you come when you can or you want to and you volunteer for what interests you. And if church doesn't work out for you or a church doesn't work out for you or meet your needs, you you leave and you find a different one that suits you better. Or you practice your faith at home in front of the TV or the internet. Now for those who are a bit older who still remember when church was mandatory for Christians, this is going too far. They, They believe church attendance is still vital. That perhaps you can be a Christian by yourself at home, but but not a good Christian. A good Christian attends church. And an even better Christian volunteers to help with the responsibilities and the ministries of the church. But it still has to do with being a voluntary society. An organization with its building and its public services led by clergy, more or less passively attended by the congregation, and managed and maintained by the faithful good Christians who go the extra mile. That's more or less what Americans call church today. But here's the thing. Just because we call something church doesn't make it church. Just because we call it the real thing doesn't make it the real thing. And I would like to suggest that today's passage in Luke 8 wants to shake us, to wake us up, and to make us take a hard look at whether what we call church today is actually what church really is. Today's passage takes us back to a time before there was church. And it gives us an insight into why church came about and what it was supposed to be in the first place. As in Luke's story, Jesus begins to gather a community a family around himself. And the first thing we have to realize is that what happens in today's passage is preceded by Jesus being rejected by his birth family back in Luke 4. If you remember back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we looked at this back in the spring. Jesus had gotten up in his small town synagogue, the one in Nazareth, Uh, that he grew up in with his family, perhaps with his uncles and aunts and cousins, as well as his friends and neighbors. And he'd read from Isaiah 61. And then he'd announced that that amazing prophetic vision from that passage of God's future kingdom was now being fulfilled in himself. 
Jesus had further added that since his own folks probably weren't going to believe him, he would go and take God's blessings of salvation to their enemies, the Gentiles. And, and so what did Jesus' own people do to him? Many of them anyway? Well, they dragged him out to a cliff and they tried to throw him off. Right at the beginning of his mission, Jesus lost his home. He lost his family. We saw then in Luke 5 how Jesus had responded, how he immediately went out to look for a new family. Because in Jesus' day, in Jesus' culture, which was a very tribal culture, to be without a family, an extended family, a tribe, was inconceivable. You couldn't survive without a family. You couldn't belong without a family. Family was everything. So Jesus went to look for a new family. And where did he find it? Well, he found it over in Capernaum at Simon Peter's house. And starting there, Jesus branched out and he started his own family with Peter and his brother Andrew, with James and John, with Levi, a tax collector, with several other men, with Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and some other women. And so as we move through the early chapters of Luke, we see Jesus traveling around, fulfilling his mission with a growing band of family. And they're sharing together economically. They're helping one another out. They're doing ministry together. They're learning from Jesus. They are a family on mission together. And Jesus is their head, their teacher, their leader. It's the first glimpse we get of what is going to become church. And with that, we come to today's passage where suddenly Jesus' old family, his birth family, come back onto the scene. His mother and brothers want to see him. Luke doesn't tell us why, but Mark tells us that at this point, they still don't believe in Jesus, and they think he's gone kind of crazy. And so they want to take charge of him. They're, they're asserting themselves again as, as his right and proper family. And how does Jesus respond to his mom and to his flesh and blood brothers? He says, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. He goes on later in chapter 14 to add, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. These words are radical even today. But in Jesus' day, boy, I'll tell you, to reject your blood relatives like this was utterly scandalous and shameful. And it seemed to people, it must have seemed to people to be downright evil. But the way I picture it is like a little girl standing in a busy street, scared and, and, and calling uh, to her daddy who's on the sidewalk, Daddy, come here. Um, but daddy's on the sidewalk yelling back, no, you come here, right? Um, and that's Jesus, the daddy figure, separated from his family, the little girl. But he couldn't come to them. He needed them to come to him. Because Jesus knew that the mission he was on to save the world had to come first. And that everything else, even his family, had to come second. And so Jesus, we see in today's passage and even before this, was, was starting a new family with, with those who would be with him and would share in his mission and, and that this was the beginnings of what became church. 
So which comes first in our priority, church or family? You know, in the 1980s, when I was growing up, there were two guiding lights, two luminaries, which led and inspired evangelical Christianity in the U.S. And that influence has carried on to today. One was Jesus Christ. The other was Dr. Dobson. Now, I'm sure there were other luminaries besides those two, but I grew up believing the gospel according to Dr. Dobson and focus on the family. Every afternoon in the summer, we would sit by the the radio and we would listen to Dr. Dobson and his co-host, Gil Meggerly, as they taught us how to be family, how um, parents could, or spouses could have a healthy marriage and how parents could raise obedient, well-adjusted kids, how we kids could be obedient and well-adjusted. And I learned a lot from Dr. Dobson's programs, which which still reflects the way I relate to Anne, my wife, and um, how I parent my kids. And we have to remember the situation that Dr. Dobson was speaking into in the 80s. Uh, Divorce rates were on the rise. Moms were going to work, but dads weren't picking up the slack with the kids. And so latchkey kid had become a new term in the 80s. And uh, my generation, Generation X, were watching as, as the family was crumbling down all around us, which is a trauma Generation X still hasn't recovered from. And in the midst of this, Dr. Dobson was like a voice calling in the wilderness, urging Christians to focus on the family, which was all good, except that I don't remember Dr. Dobson helping us very much to focus on Jesus. Now, maybe he did, but but that's not what I got as Dr. Dobson's passion. And so what I got from Dobson was what really matters first is, is your family. And, and by the way, go to church. Be good Christians too because that's what a good family should do. And, and I'm sure that, um, that that's not what Dobson meant to communicate, but, but that's what I got. And, and if you look at Christians today, I think that's what a lot of us got. Be a good Christian family Work hard on your marriage, hold it together, learn how to raise your kids so they grow up to make you proud and not to give you grief, and then bring your nice Christian family to church to give God thanks and to give Jesus his due. No one would admit it, but it's really family first and then Jesus. Well, that's just the opposite of what Jesus is saying in our passage today. Jesus is saying, me first, then family. And in fact, if you stick with me, I'm going to give you a new family. And that new family has to come first. Hear Jesus again. My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. And if anyone comes to me and does not hate their family, such a person cannot be my disciple. uh, Luke 14. Now it sounds like Jesus is anti-family, but he's not. Elsewhere, the New Testament is clear that husbands and wives are to make their relationship a priority and that kids are to obey their parents and parents aren't to exasperate their children. The book of 1 Timothy even says that that if you've got family members in need and you don't take care of them, you're worse than an unbeliever. So granted, once you leave everything to follow Jesus, he's very often going to send you right back and say, start putting your faith into practice beginning with your own family. But as far as Jesus is concerned, he wants us to be clear that he comes first and then family. And the first family that his followers are to be committed to isn't our blood family, but
but our spiritual family. According to Jesus, therefore, we see um, church is supposed to be first and foremost family. And that's a far cry from what church has very often become today as a volunteer society organized around a weekly worship service. I mean, how many healthy families do you know who, who do family when it suits them and they switch families when it doesn't and the main thing they do when they get together is sit in rows and sing pre-selected songs and then listen quietly to their leader speak to them for 30 minutes. All right, well, there's more in today's passage. Because who exactly does Jesus say is his family? Verse 21, it's those who hear God's word and put it into practice. This conclusion is actually the punchline of, of the first part of chapter 8. Because chapter 8 is almost all about hearing God's word. There are two parables in chapter 8. We've looked at them. Uh, we looked at the first one a number of weeks ago. That's the parable of the sower with the four soils. Paul Voltmer went through it with us. The sower is Jesus, and he sows seed, which is God's word. Some of the seed falls on the path where people hear the word, and they're hard to it, and so it can't penetrate. Some seed falls in thin soil, and that's those who hear the word and they receive it, but, but when times get tough, their faith withers and they fall away. Then there's the seed that falls in the thorny soil, and that's those who hear the word, but life's worries and, and, and riches and pleasures choke it out. And that's Westchester County soil, by the way. And then there's the seed that falls in good soil, which are those who hear the word, they retain it, and they persevere at producing a crop. So Jesus tells that parable. Then he tells a second parable, which we've kind of skipped over, which is about a lamp, which of course is meant not to be hidden, but it's meant to shine its light in darkness. Now Jesus tells a few parables about lamps, but in this case, in this context, it's Jesus who is the lamp shining in darkness. And as he speaks God's word freely, widely, that's the light shining brightly. And so Jesus warns in verse 18, Therefore consider carefully how you hear. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they think they have will be taken from them. In other words, Jesus in shining his light has done his part in speaking the word to us. Now we are responsible for what we do with what we've heard. If, like the good soil, we, we hear and we retain and we put into practice what we've heard, then we'll be given more knowledge, more light, more revelation about God. But if we don't listen, we don't put it into practice, then, like the other three soils, then even what we've heard will be taken from us. We'll kind of just forget about it and move on. And so on the heels of those two parables, Luke tells us this little episode about Jesus' family. And who are Jesus' real family? Shockingly, not his blood relatives, but those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Hearing and practicing God's word is so important that Jesus is willing to disown his own family over it and to declare that those who follow his word are his true family. Why this is becomes more clear when we remember what Jesus' word is. Back in the spring, we looked at Jesus' word. We looked at uh, what he said um, to us about living in the new kingdom that he'd come to bring. We saw that he, uh, he'd come to bring good news to the poor, 
to bring freedom for the captives and sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim God's justice, God's year of favor, that when debts were forgiven and slaves were set free. I said year of justice, I meant year of jubilee. Jesus also said that that he personally had the authority to forgive sins. That people didn't have to go to the temple, to the religious system to get right with God anymore. He said that he'd come for sinners, for spiritually sick people, for losers, for unclean lepers and rejected tax collectors, and that he would welcome them into his family and into his kingdom. He said he was bringing new wine which couldn't be contained in old religious wineskins. He said in his kingdom, the poor would be blessed and the hungry would be satisfied, but the rich would be turned away empty. He said that we must love our enemies, that we must turn the other cheek, that we must do good to those who hate us and lend without expecting repayment, that we must treat others with the same grace with which Jesus is willing to receive us. And so we must not judge others, but freely forgive them. And he said... If we join him in living this way, by this vision, we should expect to be rejected and persecuted by the world because it would happen as a matter of course. And now Jesus says that his family are those who hear these words and put them into practice. And so choosing to be a part of Jesus' family, the community of those who follow his words is the most important thing, more important even than belonging to your blood family. And that's what church is going to be about, according to Jesus. You know, sociologists have studied social movements and revolutions, and they tell us that it's impossible to live counterculturally all by yourself. The influence of the culture around us is just too powerful, and so we may intend to swim upstream and and to live a different kind of life, but but the current gets too strong, and, and like rocks in a river, we eventually get worn down and swept along. But put us together with with a few like-minded people, and together we can keep our vision strong, we can keep our fire lit, and now we can take on the world. It takes a community to sustain a countercultural movement. That's what any sociologist will tell you. And, and that's what Jesus in Luke is calling together, and that's what he's inviting us to be part of, a family on mission together. My mother and brothers, Jesus says, are those who hear my revolutionary words and put them into practice together. Just because a toddler is talking into a TV remote doesn't make that remote a cell phone. Just because you call something the real thing doesn't make it the real thing. And just because we in North America call what we do on Sunday mornings church doesn't necessarily make it church. And so what about us at CBC? Where are we at in this? Are we really a church? Well, I feel like we're somewhere between the typical North American version of church, which has influenced us all, and the family on mission that Jesus is talking about in today's passage. We're on a journey. We're trying to find our way back to Jesus. We're challenging ourselves to be more committed to Jesus and to his word. We're asking, what would it look like to be less of a voluntary society and, and more of a family on mission together? 
And so we've been experimenting with some smaller, more family-like, missional expressions of church, trying to figure this out. And it's at times a hard journey, a confusing journey, but it's worth it. And, and, And let me tell you why it's worth it. And here's the good news in this passage. It's worth it because Jesus, in his grace, has invited us to be a part of his own family. Jesus wants to draw us close, wants to make us his own, his own mother and brothers. And anything which allows us to better accept and enjoy that invitation is going to be totally worth it. So how do we make this practical? Well, one way to join this this journey is to be part of one of our missional communities uh, or or maybe to start a new family on mission with some other folks and we as a church can help you figure out how to do that. Another way to make this practical um, is to catch yourself when, when you're tempted to look down on or to minimize these newer, smaller things. You know, we're so programmed in our culture to think bigger is better. So it's tempting to think that a big service with all the bells and whistles is the real thing. But remember, just because we've been calling something the real thing doesn't necessarily mean it is the real thing. Finally, a third practical thing we can do um, is that we really need to be praying about all this. Praying for wisdom for this journey. Praying for Jesus' guidance. Praying uh, for hearts that... that, um, really receive and obey Jesus' words. Praying that that we will really come to enjoy more of what it means to be a part of Jesus' family, to feel his embrace, to be kin with him. For those who can stay for the prayer meeting, um, that's what we'll be doing at 11.15 today. But right now, we get to reaffirm that we're Jesus' family. As we gather together around Jesus' table to enjoy communion with him. He calls us his mother. He calls us his brothers. He delights to be with us.